Good morning and welcome here as we continue our journey through the letter of Philippians. I'm Peter Rosner and I'm one of the pastors here on staff at Bethany and I get to help us navigate the end of Philippians chapter 1 this week. So just to help us get our bearings in this letter once again, I think it's helpful to quote Patty from last week who summarized it perfectly. Paul is razor focused on Jesus, which is absolutely true. I mean, in the short first chapter of Philippians, Paul says the name of Jesus 18 times. I mean, he really wants us to get that the main thing is Jesus. Paul begins the letter with greetings in the name of Jesus and a prayerful desire for the Philippians to experience his grace and peace, followed by a focus on the gospel, continuing to transform the minds and hearts and lives of the Philippian church so that they can continue to reach and transform the world through Jesus working in their lives. Which then leads Paul to talk about how his current suffering and struggle has actually just served to advance the gospel even further. And today we get to dive into first, uh, sorry, Philippians 1, 27 to 30. And we'll be looking at it through the, uh, the NLT version or the New Living Translation. Where Paul begins to shift his attention from himself and his own struggles for bringing forward the gospel towards the Philippian church. And so we'll pick it up in verse 27. And then once we read it all the way through, we'll begin wading back through it verse by verse. So verse 27. Above all, or as the New International Version puts it, whatever happens, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting or laboring together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Well, there's a lot for us to unpack in that short passage there. So let's begin just with verse 27, and then we'll make our way through it bit by bit. So verse 27, it says this, above all, or, uh, above all or whatever happens, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Let's just pause here for a moment. You must live as citizens of heaven. The first thing that we should notice is that for Paul, this idea of living as citizens of heaven, it's a present day reality. One that will certainly extend into the future, but it begins today. Whether we use the terminology ambassadors of Christ or royal priesthood or kingdom people, this all connotes this idea that we are set apart to live during the present time in a way that is distinct and different from the, those around us. There should be something unusual or even weird about how we go about our lives. Paul says it this way. Being citizens of heaven means we should conduct ourselves in a man manner worthy of the good news about Christ. But what exactly does this mean? And how is this accomplished? 
Perhaps I'm the only one here today, but I sometimes find it difficult to live in a way that is worthy of the good news about Christ. There are times when I wish I was a more well-formed human being, more patient, more kind, more loving. Which is why, as Andrew said a few weeks ago, the foundation of our faith is grace. It's not what we did or can do, but what God did and is doing. Ephesians 2.8.9 says it this way, God saved you by his grace when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. So our citizenship is a gift that we receive through trust in Jesus. But then are we left to our own devices to figure out how we work this out in our own life? Of course not. We've already read in Philippians 1, 6, where Paul says, I'm certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it is finally finished on the day when Jesus Christ returns. Followed by this, Paul says, I pray, I pray that your love will overflow more and more and that you will keep on growing in knowledge and understanding. For I want you to understand what really matters so that you may live pure and blameless lives until the day of Christ's return. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation. I love that line. May you always be filled with the fruit of your salvation, the righteous character produced in your life by Jesus Christ, for this will bring much glory and praise to God. So when Paul says you must live as citizens of heaven, he's inviting the Philippians to lean into their relationship with and reliance on Jesus. And to support the Philippians in this endeavor, Paul chooses to pray first and foremost, because prayer connects us to the God who is active and living and present in all and through all, and to the God who will continue the good work he began in them and now in us until it is complete. Paul is suggesting that above all else, the Philippians must keep their eyes on Jesus and open themselves up to Jesus and his unfolding kingdom so that they might participate in what he is up to in this world. And if we hope to live as citizens of heaven, then we must do the same. To follow Jesus is about having a posture of openness, an openness to hear from God, be formed by God, and led by God in the context of community where we can bear witness to one another about how we see evidence that the fruit of the Spirit is actually maturing in one another's lives. And then when we fail to live this out perfectly, we should be quick to encourage and forgive one another because our faith is a faith built on the foundation of grace and a peace that surpasses understanding. With that said, let's move into the second half of verse 27, our first verse of the day. So Paul continues, then, as a result of what we just talked about, our posture towards Jesus as citizens of heaven, whether I come to see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting or laboring together for the faith, which is the good news. So here it would seem in Paul's mind that when a community is seeking after the things of Christ, when the gospel has gotten a hold of their hearts and is forming them as a people, as they open themselves up to the active presence of Christ's spirit in their lives, the result is unity. The result seems to always be unity. 
It's a oneness as they stand together in one spirit, laboring together for the faith. And this idea of Jesus-y people being a unified people is found throughout Scripture. Jesus himself offers this prayer in John uh, 17, 20 through to 21. I am praying not only for these disciples, the ones that were with him current at, at that time, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they all that they will all be one, just as you and I are one, as you are in me, Father, and I am in you, and may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. To truly grasp the good news of Jesus is to discover a unity with those who are also following Jesus, a unity despite any diversity that would normally divide people. As it says in 1 John 4, verse 20, If someone says, I love God, but hates a fellow believer, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? So how can this unity actually be achieved? N.T. Wright commentates on the book of Philippians, saying this, Paul urges the Philippians to let their public behavior match up to the gospel, which will mean sharing in the Messiah's suffering, and in particular, he urges them to cherish and guard their unity and holiness. But how, N.T. Wright asks, the central appeal of the first half of the letter explains, unity and holiness will come and will only come as the mind of the community and the individuals within it are transformed to reflect the mind of the Messiah himself. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer would add, Christian brotherhood, or in contemporary vernacular, Christian community is not an ideal which we must realize. It is rather a reality created by God in Christ in which we may participate. The more clearly we learn to recognize that the ground and strength and promise of our fellowship is in Jesus Christ alone, the more serenely shall we think of our fellowship and pray and hope for it. So not unlike our citizenship as citizens of heaven being an an act of grace, so too is our unity with fellow believers. It's achieved only as we engage with Jesus together in prayer, that his grace transforms us into a unified collective. It's only when we invite him to transform us into a people who can truly be the salt and light of the earth that we will begin to bear witness to his goodness throughout this world. But I don't want to pretend like this is simple, because if you've been around a church for more than a few weeks, you know that it's not. I mean, even at the end of the letter, which we'll get to at the end of this summer, we read Paul talking about a conflict in the church of Philippi. He says, now I appeal to Yodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreements, to which Paul adds, Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. You see, these two are Jesus-loving, gospel-sharing women who I am sure were earnest in their desire to faithfully follow Christ. And yet there was something which they could not seem to find any agreement on. And even Paul himself wasn't immune to this divisiveness either. In Acts chapter 15, we read that he has a falling out with Barnabas and that they had such a sharp disagreement that they ended up parting company. 
You see divisiveness and disunity happen when the stakes are high and there seems to be a lot to lose. And as I've been pondering and praying about this message, this thought kept coming to my mind as I've been thinking about what I would say this week. And the word that kept coming to my mind is this, is that division and disunity happens when the gospel becomes about being right and not about being forgiven. I want to say that one more time. I think unity breaks down when the gospel we hold on to becomes about being right and not forgiven, reconciled, redeemed, and made into new creations through Jesus. And this has been the struggle of the church for generations. That's why, as we've heard before, and we, we sometimes joke about, there seems to be a church on every corner in this city. And I believe that fear can play a big part in this. Fear of getting it wrong and being judged by God. Fear of someone not coming to know Jesus because of an obstacle put in their way. Fear of not staying true to the word of God. Fear of failing to love as God first loved us. But I want to offer this to us today. As we contemplate as a community what it means to be a united people, a citizen of heaven. And I want to do this by reading 1 John uh, verse 16 through to 21. It's a bit of a longer passage to read, but I think that if it can get deep within us in our bones, we'll see beautiful things happen in our community. So it says this, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they cannot see. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, some of us I know might be thinking, yes, yes, love, it's important. But there's more to it than that, isn't there? What if we get something wrong? Well, 1 Peter 4.8 says this, Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, I'm not saying that getting it right doesn't matter. Remember Paul's prayer at the beginning of this letter? He says, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Truth matters, knowledge matters, and insight matters. But if truth, knowledge, and insight fuels fear and cruelty and division like it did for Yodia and Sintika, or Paul and Barnabas, those who are filled with the Spirit and earnestly pursuing Jesus, I think somewhere along the line, at least for a moment, we've missed the plot. 
Because all of us, all of us here today have been wrong, are wrong in some way currently, and will continue to get it wrong in the future in ways that others might believe are catastrophic mistakes. So thank God our faith and our salvation is not based on us getting it all right or understanding everything there is to understand, but God saved you and me by his grace when we believed. And we can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done or being right on this matter or that so that none of us can boast about it. Amen and amen. Okay, so with that section of our passage under our belt, let's move on to the next two verses, verse 28 and verse 29, where Paul changes gears a little bit. He says, Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. So not unlike Paul, the Philippians are also facing some sort of persecution and harassment for their faith. And Paul's order to them is not to be intimidated by their enemies. But what does this mean for a Christian to not be intimidated by their enemies? If you were present during our Sermon on the Mount series, you'd know it can't mean combating them with violence. For Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard the law that says the punishment must match the injury, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, Give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it for two miles. Give to those who ask and don't turn away from those who want to borrow. You've heard the law that says, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that much. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even pagans do that. So according to Jesus, we don't cower from those who would oppose us, but we pray for them. We bless them and we serve them. We pray for them. We bless them and we serve them. As we rely on the spirit within us to give us courage to persevere. As Paul says in 2 Timothy, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. But to be honest, I've, I've struggled to know how to approach this verse these couple verses for our time today, because for most of us, if not all of us, we just don't know what it means to suffer and be persecuted for our faith, to fear the loss of life or for the safety of our loved ones, to live with the constant threat of harassment and judgment and exclusion, and then to be called upon to love those who are doing these things, that we might be some sort of living symbol to those who are far from the ways of God, that the good news is true Jesus is God, 
and there is salvation, mercy, grace, and healing for all who would receive it. And the danger is to relativize this passage to the point that it applies too easily to our current reality, while ignoring the fact that there is horrific persecution of Christians going on today in countries like North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, and India, places where faith in Jesus may actually cost you your life or your freedom. And so I encourage you to look at the news or go onto a website like Voice of the Martyrs Canada, where you can learn about what is going on, pray for the afflicted, and learn how you can meaningfully respond to and support our brothers and sisters who are suffering for their faith in Christ. Because as Paul says in the next and final verse of our passage today, we are in this struggle together. But I also don't want to pretend that persecution or suffering doesn't happen in the West, because it can and it does, even if we don't always see it. I remember going on an inner city missions trip to Yonkers, New York, when I was in my undergraduate program, where we helped out with a youth ministry and the leaders broke us up one night uh, into a guy and girl Bible study group and after some games. And one particular boy was, was really engaging a lot. And I remember being impressed with him and some of his responses to the questions that were being asked. And then after the meeting, the, the youth leader was talking to us and told us a bit about that youth's life. You see, he had joined a gang before finding Jesus through this inner city mission. And he tried to leave the gang after coming to faith. But the problem is, you don't get to leave a gang. So one night as he's walking to the youth group, he noticed some of his old buddies following him. So he walked past the youth center because he knew they would follow him in. And he didn't want to bring that into this space. But a few blocks later, they caught up to him. They pinned him to the ground and they took out a box cutter and then cut a crucifix along his entire back. The doctor said if the blade was just an inch over, it would have done permanent damage to his spinal cord, which gave every word that came out of that boy's mouth about Jesus a whole new weightedness and depth of meaning. Believe me, when you hear someone speak about Christ who has suffered for Christ, it is powerful and confronting and transforming. And I think this is a bit of what Paul is trying to get at laying his life down for the sake of his new faith family and sharing his faith, living out his faith, despite being persecuted, is a powerful testimony and witness to the world that Jesus is who he says he is. However, while many of us have not experienced violent forms of persecution like the one I just shared, suffering is truly a human condition. And so it only seems right that I also recognize that truth here today. Suffering is part of the human condition. And suffering is also the way of the cross. Suffering as a result of the sin and brokenness in the world is inevitable. And following Jesus may only intensify that reality as we seek to stop numbing the pain of our lives with TV or gossip or substances. And we embrace suffering, our own hurt and the world's as part of our journey towards holiness. Jesus says this in Matthew 16. If any of you, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must 
Give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? You see, Jesus equates following him to willingly picking up a Roman torture device, relinquishing our rights to do it our way and to embrace death so that we may truly experience life. Yet I'll always remember an observation a seminary professor made on this passage years ago while I was in class. He said, we often mistakenly put our focus on the suffering, on the trials and on the cross. But the focus here is not on the suffering, but on Jesus. And when Jesus is our focus, when we have made room for Jesus' spirit to well up in our lives, all suffering pales in comparison to what we receive in him. And so as we draw our time together to close now, and I consider how to tie this message up, I'm not going to offer us a challenge this week, but a closing thought that I hope will linger with us as we move forward and that God will continue to use to minister to our minds and our hearts as a result of our time spent together. So to do this, I want to draw on one final passage that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians. It reads, For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything, everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. For Paul, his message will always be one thing, Jesus, the one who was crucified. Jesus, the one who paid the ultimate price so that we, through grace, could be citizens of heaven and co-heirs with Christ so that despite differences that would otherwise separate us and create disunity, instead we may find supernatural unity, forgiveness, and mutual self-giving love. And so that, even in the suffering we may experience, inflicted upon us by others, our own doing, or disease, sickness, and death, we may have joy, peace, and perseverance that not only confirms to us God's active and living presence in our lives, but it also serves as a sign to the world that Jesus is indeed King, and we are indeed free to live as we were created to live. So may that reality be true in your life and mine as we go forward this week. Grace and peace, everyone.